If you want a sign that humanity's still got it going on. The people are revolting. Welcome to People Are Revolting, a daily dose of disobedience. This piece is written by Hassan Ali and is published at thenation.com. Dr. Sarah Gill was just 14 when she ran away from home in Karachi. For most of her childhood, she had suffered the humiliation of feeling like a girl, but being told she was a boy. She used to quarrel with her mother for making her dress like a boy and would refuse to study unless she was allowed to grow her hair long. From my features, it was always very obvious that I wasn't a guy, she says. People used to degrade me a lot because of my looks. They would come to my house and tell my parents all sorts of things about me. One day, Sarah remembers only that she was in the ninth grade. Her parents had a male relative over for dinner. He took one look at her and sternly declared that her femininity would end up disgracing the household. He said that with me being the way I was, no one would send marriage proposals for any of the girls in our family. I remember my father fell silent and that none of us finished our dinner that evening. Later that night, Sarah's father and other relatives locked her in a room and beat her so badly that she asked them to put her out of her misery by taking her life. With hindsight, I don't blame anyone for what happened to me, she says. My father didn't know any better. No one in our society has been taught what to do with a child that is neither a boy nor a girl. The Urdu language is such a rich language, but it only has words for son and daughter. Even the language cannot tell me what I am to my parents. Sarah does not remember how many days passed, only that she feared she was about to be killed. Finally, she ran away from home, hidden in the shroud of night. While she was walking down the street, a car stopped in front of her, and the window rolled down. I was a 14-year-old child with nowhere to go, she says. I had no choice but to get in that car. Sarah is unusually reticent about what happened next. I won't say that I wasn't given food or shelter because I was, but on what conditions and in exchange for what. A few nights later, she was taken off the streets of central Karachi. Homeless and destitute, she had been wandering aimlessly for hours when she was approached by a group of transgender women who had been begging at traffic lights slightly further on. They took her in and arranged to have her placed with a guru, a community matriarch, who agreed to raise her and give her shelter. Community members told her that there were three possible ways that she could make a living. She could dance, beg, or become a prostitute. I decided to dance at parties, she says. I think I've danced in every city and village in Pakistan. As harrowing as it was, Sarah Gill's experience is not atypical for a transgender woman living on the Indian subcontinent. For centuries, intersex people, those who possess both male and female sexual organs, and those assigned male at birth who have subsequently identified as women, have left their homes and joined third-gender communities, where they have been able to express their femininity without fear of persecution. These societies are organized around a guru chela, 
master-disciple system of kinship and have their own rules, rituals, and dispute resolution mechanisms. In Pakistan, the terms used to describe people who belong to these communities are varied and sometimes used interchangeably. Most common among them are the words Hijra and Kawajasira, two historically distinct groups who are conflated in the modern day. In pre-colonial India, the Kawajasira were enslaved eunuchs who were employed in a variety of bureaucratic, military, and scribal functions. According to the historian Jessica Hinchy, they predominantly embodied a sort of noble masculinity and they could aspire to quite high social standing. Hijras, by contrast, embodied the feminine, working as vagrant performers who earned their living by blessing infants and newlyweds and sometimes through prostitution. Though not necessarily affluent, the Hijra community certainly had a place in society. During Mughal rule, for instance, they were awarded various forms of stage patronage, including cash grants, begging rights, and fertile tracts of land. I would be hard-pressed to think of any instances in pre-modern India where people seem particularly concerned about there being various people we would now call transgender, says Audrey Trushki, a historian who specializes in the Mughal period. Whether it's women dressing up as men or intersex people or eunuchs, they're around, they're there, and they have their own place in society. And that's that. With British colonization, however, came a wave of persecution. Hijra communities were systematically targeted under the Criminal Tribes Act of 1871, with colonial administrators deeming them an unclean presence. Quote, the British in the middle of the 19th century are trying to classify and know the Indian population in more intensified ways, Hinji says. Groups that are difficult to classify and know are just anxiety-inducing for the British colonial government. And the Hijra community are that in multiple ways. I mean, obviously they're gender embodiment, but also they're a disciple-based community, so their forms of kinship are not legible to the colonial state. Another part of this persecution, according to Hinchy, was the consolidation of binary concepts of gender in Europe and European empires in the 18th and 19th centuries. Several historians have argued that it's in the 18th century that you really get this solidification of a binary understanding of gender, which views male and female as two incommensurably different categories that are opposed to each other, she says. Perhaps the most prominent among these historians is Thomas Lacker, who argues that what preceded this theory of binary opposites was a one-sex model in which the female body was seen as a failed or imperfect version of the male. Though problematic in its own right, this way of thinking about gender was necessarily more flexible than the two-sex model that supplanted it. Certainly by the 19th century, that sort of binary understanding of gender has really solidified, Hinchy says, and it's not just that it gets exported to the colonies, because the ways in which British understandings of gender and sexuality were shaped through the process of becoming an imperial power is also part of that history. In present-day Pakistan, a great deal of Kawajasira activism centers on the deleterious effects of this colonial legacy. Even the use of the term Kawajasira, which has been adopted by legislators, activists, 
and community members as an all-encompassing category for third-gender people living in Pakistan was in some sense made necessary because of the way the word hijra had come to be used as a slur. Dr. Marib Awan, a Kawaja Sira activist based in Karachi, believes that the injunction to define one's own gender is a result of cultural imperialism. The question is one of modernity and Westernism and the hegemony of the Western philosophy of sexuality, she says. It forces us indigenous Eastern peoples to position ourselves in a framework of Western sexuality so that our realities are consumable for a modern audience. Marub recalls that she didn't really know what gender was until she started going to school. I think it was in kindergarten that I was first told that I was a boy, she says, and I did not know what that meant. As punishment for playing with dolls and exhibiting other forms of feminine behavior, Marub remembers her parents would lock her up in dark rooms. I spent so many years being locked up in the garage that I could remember every inch of the tattered carpet. I'd memorize where all the loose nails and sharp points were, so I knew where I could and couldn't sit down. Though she never felt comfortable with her body, social pressures were such that Marub spent most of her life identifying as a man. In 2016, she went to the United States on a Fulbright scholarship. It was the experience of living as a gay man in Washington, D.C., where she completed a master's degree in public health at George Washington University that convinced her that she could no longer embody the masculine. Basically, I decided that this being a man thing was not for me. I'd done it and didn't like it and said goodbye to it. According to Merib, her realization resulted from the frequent expectation of sexual partners that she behave in a way that was hyper-masculine. I was living in Pentagon City, which was full of American soldiers, so anyone I'd match with on Grinder would say things like, I want you to fuck me like I'm a horse, and I want you to shout Allahu Akbar while you're doing it, and I want you to make me your American slut, she remembers. And then within the gay culture, there's a lot of toxic masculinity, right? It's like we are into men, not sissies. By the time Marib returned to Pakistan two years later, the landscape for transgender and gender ambiguous people had fundamentally changed. In May 2018, after years of grassroots activism, the Pakistani parliament passed the Transgender Persons Protection of Rights Act, a landmark piece of legislation developed to protect the rights of, quote, any person whose gender identity and or gender expression differs from the social norms and cultural expectations based on the sex they were assigned at the time of their birth. The law, among the most progressive in the world, defines the term gender identity as a person's, quote, innermost and individual sense of self as male, female, or a blend of both or neither, and gives individuals the right to self-identification. It now no longer mattered what gender you had been assigned at birth, According to the language of the act, an individual could identify as whatever gender they felt like and have that identity reflected in official documents. The act also prohibits discrimination against trans individuals in schools, hospitals, and places of work. It lays out their inheritance rights and codifies the right to vote and run for public office. The 2018 law makes me feel a lot safer, says Iman Kazmi transgender woman living in Islamabad. I feel more confident in my gender identity, and I'm not apologetic about it like I used to be. 
Lately, that law has been facing various attempts to amend it or repeal it. With the law now in danger of being watered down or repealed, activists fear a return to the days when transgender people were stigmatized, misunderstood, and forced into segregation. That is the view of Naib Ali, a Kawaja Sira campaigner who heads the Transgender Protection Unit of the Islamabad Police. The unit was created to encourage trans people to report their grievances directly to the police instead of relying on the unofficial dispute resolution framework of the Guruchela system. At the end of 2020, Nayab Ali founded the Free Society, a new group within the transgender community whose members would no longer be bought and sold and who could live their lives without fear of ostracism and exile. This revolution, which began in Nayab's living room, has spread like wildfire throughout the country. We are in the majority now, she says. I can tell you that just in Islamabad, about 75% of Kawaja Sira belong to the Free Society. Under Nayab's supervision, members of the Free Society are trained in how to use social media to promote their cause and given a grounding in various sections of the law. Our goal isn't just to free these individuals, Nayab says. We want to give them the tools they need to stand up for themselves. We are creating leaders who are actually talking about independence and freedom. In retaliation, Nayab says leaders in the community decided to cut off her hookah pani. I was like, so what? I made a video which went viral, naming the Kawajasira chieftains and said that I was excommunicating them in return. With the movement gathering steam, however, the excommunication has become the least of her concerns. I've had people come to my house to kill me. Elders in the community have tried to accuse me of blasphemy and of disrespecting the prophet. I received so many messages on WhatsApp saying things like I'll be burned alive or killed. There are people who dream of killing me every night. Her courage to carry on, she says, is rooted in her, in her Islamic faith and in a promise she made to herself while fighting for her life. In 2016, while she was dancing at a music festival in Muradwala, Naib was ambushed and doused with acid. Bedridden for several months, she decided that if she survived, she would dedicate her life to fighting for her community. Movements always require blood, she says, for members of vulnerable communities like ours to be afraid of death is to behave like a chicken in a coop. Every time the butcher takes out a chicken to slaughter, the others start dancing because their number hasn't come up. But eventually, everyone's number will come up. If you want to check out back episodes of People Are Revolting, just go to peoplearerevolting.com. You can also follow on Twitter at people revolting. Keep revolting. And thanks for listening. If you want a sign that humanity's still got it going on, People are revolting. I think you just nailed it.